Hello and welcome to the final episode of the sixth season of Bad Gays, a podcast about evil and complicated queers in history. I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwules Museum in Berlin. And I'm Hiremi, a writer and author. So uh, last week we talked about the Japanese shogun Tokugawa Iemitsu and the very different sex gender system of uh, shogunate Japan. What is the subject of our episode this week, Hugh? Well, I've got a question. What's your favorite Paul Verhoeven film, Ben? Showgirls? Is that your <laughs> question? Uh, I, I didn't know that you were going to say Showgirls. Uh, yeah, it won't surprise you to find out I am a big fan of, of uh, Paul Verhoeven films. Um, this sort of mix of you know, campy, grotesque, ultra-violent satire is kind of my bag. So a couple of years ago, um, I got asked, well, I got given the chance really by my ex, who, who is a huge Verhoeven fan, to get me tickets to go to see the, um, the London Film Festival premiere of his latest film. Um, and really it hit all the sort of KPIs for my interests, um, obviously Paul Verhoeven, homosexuality, and Christian mysticism. But it was kind of is a this the Paul Verhoeven film Benedetta that I believe was made in a laboratory specifically for me because <laughs> it is a Paul Verhoeven adaptation of Judith Brown's 1984 lesbian microhistory Immodest Acts. This is that book. Is that How do such things get made outside of our dreams, Hugh? <laughs> and also, when could we expect the Paul Verhoeven adaptation of Chubbs? oh don't don't tease me but actually the ex experience was quite frustrating to go and see because i am interested in in obviously homosexuality and especially in christian mysticism and so it was very frustrating to sort of go there and then everyone was just like giggling all the way through it um and it was a bit like that scene in alan partridge where he's like all his friends are trying to half remember and explain bond films to him and he's getting increasingly frustrated by it and he starts screaming stop getting bond wrong i was i was very much like that they were just laughing along all these sex scenes and i was just wanting to shout like stop getting verhoven wrong because I mean, um he's doing something fair, he's doing something he's talking about something very serious in it yeah i mean to be fair though to that audience um the book i recall as being as being somewhat more subtle and i assume we'll get into the subtleties of the story uh, in the show but the film is operating on a level of visual subtlety in which we are watching people get like dramatically fucked over the edge of a bed with a dildo carved out of a statue of the Virgin Mary. Like it's, it's uh, it plays on all of the sort of prurient tropes as all Verhoeven films do. Um, and so uh, you understand why people might find it at least uh, a little bit funny, if not quite as funny as Elizabeth Berkeley flopping about in that swimming pool. <laughs> It's Versace. So, uh, yeah, no, I think you're entirely right. Like the popular cult, cultural sort of trope of this lesbian, like the lesbian nun has obviously been ingrained into the Western audience as this type of like, sort of like, I don't know, uh, heaving bosomed uh, uh, superlative form of sexuality, which sort of presses all those sort of buttons that we have around like naughtiness and prurience. And it's obviously like a very safe form of transgression because at its heart is supposedly the Catholic church. And so, yeah, of course he plays up to that as he does in all his films. But I do think within the film um, and also especially within the subject's life, there are actually really interesting, important sort of themes of, of power and of gender transgression, of sin, of belief, um, of deviance, of religious deviance that are, are worth discussing in more detail. So the fictionalized subject of the film, as you mentioned, who is the true life subject of today's episode, is the 16th, 17th century mystic nun, lesbian, uh, 
demonically possessed, perhaps visionary heretic, Benedetta Carlini. So Benedetta Carlini was born in 1590 on 20th of January, which is the Feast of St. Sebastian, who you might know as the unofficial patron saint of homosexuals. And her family lived in this small hill town in the Apennine Mountains in northern Italy, um, just above Florence. And they were a very close-knit family, remarkably close-knit family. Uh, Benedetta was their only child, and they, they doted on her very much. Um, in fact, her own mother, Medea, um, had nursed her herself on her own breast rather than hiring a wet nurse, which was very unusual for um, a family of that status at the time. And Benedetta is the feminine form of Benedict, which means blessed. Um, and it's clear that her parents definitely did feel blessed, not least because her, her mother um, and, and Benedetta herself nearly died in childbirth. And having prayed for their survival, her father, who was this quite well-off man in the town, um, decided that Benedetta's life would be devoted to God. They were both uh, pious and, and quite superstitious Catholics. And from a young age, Benedetta was educated by her father, um, again, quite unusually for the time, um, in religious instruction. Her mum was a devotee of Catherine of Siena, this Catholic mystic who had been canonised a few centuries earlier. And Catherine of Siena is a really fascinating figure in the history of Christian mysticism in her own right, um, not least because her visions took the form of a mystical marriage with Christ. That is, like she was a nun and a virgin, of course, uh, but she believed that she had actually married Christ in order to sort of further share his his suffering and his death in the same way that a, a woman would marry a man in order to share his life. And Catherine wrote a letter to uh, a fellow nun, like a sort of letter of advice, saying, quote, Bathe in the blood of Christ crucified. See that you don't look for or want anything but the crucified as a true bride ransomed by the blood of Christ crucified. For that is my wish. You see very well that you're a bride and that he has espoused you, you and everyone else, and not with a ring of silver, but of a ring of his own flesh. Look at the tender little child who on the eighth day, when he was circumcised, gave up so much flesh as to make a tiny circlet of a ring. Hey, yes. Jesus. <laughs> yes, you, you really did hear that right. Um, she believed that she had this mystical marriage to Christ, and in that marriage, in that wedding ceremony, um, he used his own foreskin as a wedding ring. That's, uh, listen, I've lived in Berlin a long time now, and I haven't, I haven't heard about that one. <laughs> um, so this actually led to Catherine um, leaving the convent and sort of engaging in uh, much more in the secular world, including in politics. I did it. Yeah. So, somehow I imagine that ruminations on foreskin were maybe not so welcome in <laughs> religious or ecclesiastical life. No, no, she, she, she was very much welcomed as part of the church. Um, uh, yeah, no, she was... She, this wasn't a deviant thing for her to say at all within the sort of context of uh, early modern um, Catholic uh, Renaissance theology, I guess. And that's kind of an interesting point. Like these, the mystical experiences of nuns um, were often, uh, they were often forced upon them or they it sort of allowed them to become active participants in a religious and social world where previously they kind of weren't allowed to be part of that. They were regarded as sort of meek, quiet figures. Anyway, a number of stories emerged around Benedetta as a child, including one that she was um, attacked by the devil in a form of this black dog, and another one that she was sort of singing her morning prayers, and she was joined by a nightingale who sang along, and she felt she was being interrupted, so she commanded the nightingale to stop so that she might sing alone, and the nightingale did stop, but it then remained with her throughout her childhood and would accompany her prayers, like singing along with her on command. 
Yeah, I think that story of telling the bird to stop so she can sing alone is one of the great diva origin stories of all time. Mariah Carey is shaking. <laughs> um, yeah, so she had this very unusual childhood with like a lot of this sort of superstition as part of it. And so when she was nine, her parents gave her to this religious community, which might seem like quite a strange practice, but it was actually quite common in medieval Europe. Um, Hildegard of Bingen, who's one of my favorite medieval mystics, um, she was given to her convent at a similar sort of age. And convents were sort of places that better off people could send their daughters, um, places where, you know, where they could work and live and be cared for into old age. And that's because while families would have to pay quite a large dowry to their daughter's husbands, they could enter convents for less money. Like money was still required, um, but not as much. And the money was required because of the sort of sprawling size of the um, religious communities at the time. And actually, in her article, um, it's called Lesbian Sexuality in Renaissance Italy, The Case of Sister Benedetta Carlini, which the book then comes from, um, uh, Judith C. Brown, um, she, she suggested that maybe 10% of the women in Italy at the time lived in, in such communities. So, you know, 10%, it's a, wow. Yeah. Um, and it's also probably, I mean, given the uh, state of gender relations in amongst the upper classes of uh, Italy at this period, um, if you like your daughter, it's probably a pretty decent deal in some ways. I mean, you get to read books and not have some horrible husband who's going to make you have 170 kids. And Yeah, absolutely. Like, in, in some ways, it shouldn't be seen as like the way that we'd see, oh, being sent to a nunnery these days. You know, like it was, it was um, perhaps one of the more preferable options for, for young women. Um, and so, yeah, they were very popular. In fact, there were three of them in, in Benedetta's town alone, and all of them were oversubscribed. And so as a result, Benedetta wasn't actually received into a, a convent, a nunnery. Instead, she joined this like more sort of informal religious community of women who were living together um, according to vows, who were essentially hoping that their community would get permission to become a proper convent, but it wasn't yet a convent. Um, and again, that's yes. not that- Is your daughter also part of a um, informal community of women <laughs> living together according to vows? Yeah. But she the, the also that's not necessarily a sort of second second best choice for for her parents because for a start it was cheaper than an established convent but also because these sort of private unenclosed institutions uh which weren't under papal jurisdiction they actually tended to have better rep- reputations than sort of regular convents because normal convents were just sometimes regarded as holding houses for the sort of spare daughters of the wealthy and so they had this tendency towards immorality and corruption whereas these informal institutions um such as the theatines of pescia which was the community that benedetta joined they were seen as places where like devout women actually chose to go to yeah so she lived in one of these sort of informal institutions and there she lived this sort of quiet life of prayer and spiritual exercise and that was funded both by the dowries of the women and also by um uh, their, their manual labor they worked producing silk so the theatines in their bid towards enclosure or establishment they followed the rule of saint augustine which was this loose set of guidelines for community monastic life that had been established by uh, saint augustine and it was the sort of first christian monastic code which had been revived much later in the late medieval period and augustine had actually written the rules for his sister who had been a nun but it's more of a guide like a sort of religious vibe check rather than like a set of prescriptions and prohibitions although he did make one suggestion quote the love which you bear one another ought not to be carnal but spiritual for those things which are practiced by modest women even with other females in shameful jesting and playing ought not to be done either by married women or by girls who are about to marry 
much less by widows or chaste virgins dedicated by a holy vow to be the handmaidens of Christ. So for the first 15 years in the convent, she was um, a, a sort of an unremarkable novice. She was regarded as fastidious and devout. Um, and this devotion led to an increasingly intense religious experience for her. Um, and Judith C. Brown points out that the development of the spiritual imagination was a task that was set upon women who had um, given themselves to the contemplative life. So these guidebooks for no novice nuns recommended, for example, that in order to fully access the importance of Christ's suffering during the Passion, they should transcribe the Stations of the Cross from Jerusalem to their hometown in their imagination. And so she would also have attended these uh, regular churches in Pesha because um, because her, her group wasn't yet enclosed as a nunnery within their own church. Um, she would have had access to this, this sort of religious art that was visualizing these same themes. And so with these tools and with a life in which contemplation was part of a formal routine, it's not hard to see how her inter interior imagination of her devotion would have um, taken shape. And you see this a lot in medieval Christian mysticism. Um, works of art and literature give mystics a sort of set of images for contemplation that then reappear during their visionary experiences. Now, a skeptical contemporary reading of this would probably say something like, you know, well, these mystics are um, simply using the images and texts they see as like their inspiration, either for like cynically invented visions, or perhaps more charitably as images that sort of seep into their subconscious and reemerge at times of sickness or stress or during other mental health episodes. But personally, I think it's much more fruitful to think about how these images actually existed in a sort of Christian ontology of the time. I think you have to imagine the relationship with these images and texts as part of a devotional practice which um, like animates them, like that brings them into existence in a very real way as part of that mystical experience. Um, the, the, this is a thing with mysticism, like visions as we describe them aren't hallucinations, like you aren't seeing things in the real world. Uh, instead, they're a sort of understanding of something as real. Um, William James, who was a 19th century philosopher who works a lot on these ideas of religious experience, he said that mystical experience has four necessary components. They're transients, uh, which, you know, it means that mystical experiences are temporary. Um, passivity, so it's something that sort of comes over you. You can't control it or guide it as an experience. Um, three, that it's noetic, meaning it's a form of knowledge that you that can't really be reached by other forms of intelligence, like you can't debate or reason or study your way to the understandings that you receive through mystic experience. You ha it has to just be felt. Um, and lastly, uh, that it's ineffable. Um, and I think maybe this is the most important part. It's something that actually, because it's felt, it, as a, a form of knowledge that's felt, it actually can't be explained or described adequately by human language. So mystical visions are things that are, are felt and experienced and understood more than they're seen. And while you can describe what you've seen, you can't adequately describe the knowledge that, 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 that you've understood that comes of it. And so as a result, the body that experiences the vision is a very integral part of what transmits the knowledge. Um, so I think the imagery which mystics have, have studied as part of their contemplative life, be that the paintings or the texts, is something that's activated within the mystical experience by their own bodies as a sort of source material for the ineffable knowledge of mysticism uh, that it uses to describe itself. Yeah, I think it's probably no accident that um, music, which is such an also a sort of indescribable, famously indescribable or, or difficult to sort of textualize, uh, art form uh, is something that's taken up by a lot of 
mystics, including, of course, Hildegard von Bingen, most famously. Yeah. Um, like, I think there's something similar about the way that the way that the way that the body is moved um, or that the, the vision or the music is the thing that the body is moved through um, as opposed to trying to think about how to textualize or rationalize or describe. And it makes a lot of sense what you're saying, that you would sort of reach for imagery that you were familiar with to attempt to uh, lay out the truth of the experience. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and uh, the, 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 the process of the mystical experience is a sort of coming together of the text and the body. And it, the body is, is the, is like a vessel or is like a form, a medium through which experience happens. So it's very, a lot of Christian mysticism is, um, and medieval mysticism, especially, and especially that of women is, um, extremely embodied. It's really, really related to the body. Um, uh, Elvia Wilk, who, who writes amazingly about, um, about uh, uh, women mystics in the medieval period and, and the bodily experience. She describes how um, medieval illuminated texts would often portray the wound of Christ on his side where he'd been um, stabbed with a spear. And it was the, the, the wound of Christ was like a very important object of devotion for medieval contemplatives. And it was often, it was often portrayed as like a separate body part. Like it, it was depicted separately, in fact, from Christ. You just get this image of the wound on the page. And sometimes the, 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 the wound was even uh, represented as a slit in the manuscript. Like it was a physical mark with like tear within the text, which, which, devotees could like touch they'd, they'd finger it you know they'd, they'd even kiss it and obviously it's extremely um vaginal as a representation you know it's like it looks very genital yeah you see them sometimes depicted in 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 churches or something and every time i see them my first thought is like oh and then you sort of remember what it is yeah right and 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 elvia wilk writes the more abstracted they are the more defiantly labial they appear <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, and which, which Elvia Wilk writes a lot about. In fact, she wrote, um, quote, the body must be read in order for its knowledge to be translated as best as possible into writing. Therefore, bodies, inner and outer, material and spiritual, become text. Um, in turn, the resulting written corpus must be brought alive to become like the body it's meant to resemble. In Christianity, this twin becoming of text and body parallels Christ's incarnation whereupon God's, quote, word was made flesh, uh, which is uh, from uh, uh, John in the Bible. Uh, and, and that's a very important part, you know, that that, that, that is what Christ is, is read as, as in the Bible, like he is the word made, made flesh. So these are just some tips for um, looking at Benedetta's visions in context, really, because... Um, because it can be hard for us to understand the significance and meaning and the way that they was believed and understood in, in, in the time. And so she started having these, these mystical visions in her early twenties and her early visions were, were very much related to these devotional texts. So Brown relates how, um, not only was um, one of her early visions, not only did it, it very closely echo the story of um, the woman from Samaria, which is uh, from the Bible is told again in, in John, um, but other aspects of the vision, such as the enclosed garden or this angel holding a sign with gold lettering and so on. And she writes it, quote, had become, they, these had, quote, become staples of the pictorial vocabulary of the time. So obviously Benedetta was subsumed with an incredibly devout religion, within an incredibly devout religious world in which the nature, nature of visions as visions would have been taken for granted. Um, 
it's, it's funny actually it's kind of like a, an analogy here with homosexuality itself like visions that were then interpreted um for a religious text would later come to be pathologized as a form of potential illness um like a, as a mental illness in the same way that homosexuality was seen through its religious lens and then later with the enlightenment would be start to be seen through a medicalized pathologized lens um you, you kind of see a similar analogy um I think it's questionable whether the idea that actually, I, d- I don't think you can retroactively actually go back and say what we now see as, I, I don't think you can claim that the religious visions in the past were forms of mental illness. I think this is actually just in t- entirely different ways of looking at the world. So I would, I wouldn't personally try and ever read back what were the causes of these things. Um, I don't think it's very fruitful. But you might think that in that context, you know, should be very excited to have become this um, conduit for God's grace. But in fact, um, as was common actually amongst uh, most women mystics, that the visions were actually quite terrifying for her, not not just in their own right as scary things to experience, but especially their potential social and political um, repercussions. I mean, first off, she wasn't sure whether they were divinely inspired or a trick of the devil, which is a, a big big issue really with a lot of um, uh, Christian mysticism. And then secondly, they could really end up getting her in a lot of trouble. They were potentially very disruptive socially and politically. So Hildegard, for example, she struggled with exactly the same conundrum of whether to tell anyone about them, about her visions. And she ended up getting the backing of the church for her, which led to her having a huge amount of political power. But um, Benedetta's confessor, conversely, advised her that she should actually um, try to ignore them and pray them away and to pray for actually more worldly punishment. She, they're like, you shouldn't be praying for visionary ecstasy. You should be praying for worldly punishment, um, which she tried. And then soon after, she was sort of struck down with a, a, a paralyzing sickness and she couldn't leave her bed. But these visions continued and got worse. And in these visions, she was being chased and attacked by this gang of um, supposedly handsome, very handsome young men who would then beat her and an attacker with weapons. And there seems to be some sort of Im- implication here that this was, there was an eroticized element to this, that these men were like attractive and were attempting to sort of tempt her. Um, or perhaps that she was resisting some sort of sexual urge and, and um, trying to remain chaste in escaping them. And again, this is very common. You see this in, in Marguerite camp as well. I mean, the fear of sexual violence at the time would have been so, I mean, not that the fear of sexual violence has gone away now, but at the time would have been fairly extreme. I think so as well, but I also think as a way of contextualizing like erotic thoughts, like this is a big issue in like Marguerite Kemp, who was a, a, an English mystic, um, who was actually married. She wasn't a nun and, and sex was like a big, her, her visions were very earthy. And she describes, you know, the devil coming to her and tempting her with um, all these men who surround her bed and she's very attracted to them. And, um, as she resists them, they pull out increasingly larger and larger penises. Uh, and, and, and this is, this she sees as the work of the devil trying to tempt her, but clearly she is tempted. So maybe there's an aspect of this, I think, perhaps in her understanding and come to terms of her own um, sexuality as she sort of enters her, her early twenties. All I'm saying is uh, further evidence for the psychic superiority of lesbians to gay men. A gay monk wouldn't have lasted 10 seconds when they started bringing <laughs> up the bigger and bigger cocks. Um, 
but these visions were clearly quite distressing for her at the time, and she would, they would last for hours when she was in bed, and she would sort of thrash around and make these terrible noises. And her fellow nuns were really unsure about how to proceed, because on the one hand, she was clearly in terrible distress, but on the other, the fact that one of their nuns in their midst was receiving um, divine inspiration was was very helpful in their attempt to become a recognized convent that would be enclosed and organized under the church authority. So they decided to assign to her a young nun, Bartolomeo Crivelli, uh, to aid her to sleep in her cell and to soothe her while she was in distress, which will again rank uh, alongside Francis Bacon's father's decision to uh, send him to Weimar Berlin to straighten him out in terms of sort of counterproductive heterosexual decision-making. Um, but meanwhile, things were going very well for the nuns. They'd, they'd built this new convent, and Pope Paul V um, was starting to grant them enclosure under this process. Uh, and on the, the procession to their new convent, uh, Benedetta was um, visibly undergoing a vision, which caused sort of great hope and excitement for some of the nuns. And yet some se- skepticism and worry about her condition so still sort of prevailed in the community. And then a few months later, on the second Friday of Lent, Benedetta awoke in the middle of the night, and she saw a vision above her of Christ on the cross. And Christ spoke to her, and Christ asked her if she wanted to suffer alongside him. And and she queried him as to actually, are you Christ or are you the devil in disguise? And he said, no, I really am God. And he asked her to arrange her body in the shape of a crucifix, and um, she did this. And at which point these rays of light burst out from all his wounds and they made the stigmata on her body, the, the marks on her hands where she should have been nailed to the cross and her, her, her feet and then um, the, the wound on her side and then even a wound on her head where the crown of thorns would have been. And uh, Bartolomea had uh, been awake during this and she obviously didn't see Christ, but she did attest to the conversation. She heard uh, the conversation, the, imper- the appearance of stigmata. So ben- uh, Bartolomeo would later claim that she saw the stigmata appearing. So the appearance of the stigmata was like next level miracle in the 17th century. Like there were lots of people had visions, but to, for the, the stigmata to appear, the actual marks was, was, was just something else. And, um, right. Because then you have some kind of measurable is because it's measurable, right? Yeah. Like it's not, it's not just something to say it suddenly goes from the, something that you're claiming to something that can actually be seen um, and, uh, and understood by others. Yeah. And it's actually a physical miracle, which is of course very important in uh, the Catholic church and especially in the canonization of saints. Um, uh, yeah. It, it's really seen as something, something else. And so the, 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 the her fellow nuns and also her father confessor recognized it. Uh, and as such, this father confessor, this priest, he then began to allow Benedetta to actually give sermons during which she would enter this trance-like state. And then she would speak as um, a mouthpiece of a heavenly, um, and more importantly, a male angel. And this is very important because, of course, women were and still are strictly prohibited from from preaching in the Catholic Church. And so the fact that she was allowed to preach testified to what I was saying before about mysticism as this experience within this Catholic tradition that experiences like a revealed truth. That's to say, like, it's not an intellectual process where the mind um, or even the gender of the recipient is like influencing the nature of the truth. Um, she, to, to, to the priests, to the nuns, she wasn't preaching. She was a vessel and the angel was preaching through her and the angel was male. So therefore it was permissible for her to preach. Um, she was just yeah, a vessel for God's word. 
Um, and the fellow, her fellow nuns felt obviously blessed to have this visionary in their midst. And so they elected her to be their abbess, um, the, the leader of this, this proto-convent. And then Benedetta's next vision was even more intense. And in, in this vision, um, Christ appeared with Catherine of Siena, um, her mother's favorite saint, and um, he demanded Benedetta's heart. Um, and that's not a metaphor. She, he literally demanded her heart. Like literally her heart out of, out of her chest. Yeah, literally. So she lay down and then Jesus rolls up his sleeves and then he thrusts his hand into her chest and pulls her heart from his body. <sighs> and Bartolomeo was there when, when, when she had this vision. And Bartolomeo would later attest that um, although she didn't see it, she then felt Benedetta's chest and that there was this sort of cavernous hole where her heart should be. And then three days later, Christ uh, reappeared to them in a procession, again led by um, Catherine of Siena. Um, and he was holding above his head these three arrows with a gold band around him. And he orders her to undress, which she did. And then he takes out his own heart and forces it into her chest. Ah. Yeah. Um, and so for our more devout Catholic listeners, this might actually ring a bell because Catherine of Siena also endured this so-called heart exchange. And this idea of the sacred heart was becoming um, very popular amongst especially devotional women, um, although it hadn't actually received official church approval at the time. Um, and then Jesus then gave Benedetta this series of commands that were largely regarding her purity, I guess, um, and he was very concerned about her purity. And these demands included demands to fast, that she shouldn't eat meat, she shouldn't drink milk, and that she was to wash fastidiously. And then he bestowed upon her a guardian angel called Splendatello. And Splendatello would watch over her. And Splendatello was described as this handsome young man with these long, soft, blonde, curling hair and um, wearing a white robe that was embroidered with, gilt, uh, with gold. And he held this wand which was covered in flowers on one side and thorns on the other. Um, and, uh, and so uh, Benedetta followed these rules. And over the next few weeks, she fasted and she washed and she fasted and she washed as if she was preparing for something, which was Christ preparing their wedding. Um, there's obviously like a lot of deeply misogynistic thought that's ingrained into this because not only was the washing um, a way for her to remove her impurities as a, as a woman, but, but um, Judith Brown suggests that actually the fasting might have been a way for Benedetta to sort of starve herself in order to prevent herself from menstruating because that was seen as something very unclean. Mm. And so she was very worried that she was going to be unclean and she wouldn't be prepared for her wedding with Christ. And so whenever she had um, sort of impure thoughts, um, Splendidello, this angel, would beat her with the thorny side of his wand. Oh, God. Yeah, there's some kinky shit going on here. Catholicism is so kinky. So kinky, yeah. So Jesus appears to her again, and he orders her, okay, now you've got to prepare the convent for our wedding. So she goes to her father confessor, and she tells him about the plans, and amazingly, he sort of agrees to allow the convent to be turned into a, a, a wedding ceremony. And so the nuns go out into the town. I want a big dress. I want 15 bridesmaids. I want a seven-layer cake. It was want... literally exactly like this. She had very detailed plans. And she told Benedetta the nuns. Carlini, Nud slash Bridezilla. <laughs> yeah. 
um and she, she she tells the nuns and um and they all go about it and, and no one's allowed to enter the convent except from the nuns not even the father confessor so there's this very excited air of mystery about what was happening and so they the nuns go out into the town and they gather candles and flowers and altar cloths and tapestries and baskets and all these sort of things and bring them back and to ugly the church bridesmaids dresses and they go to mallorca for the hindu and go to a day <laughs> bar and behave inappropriately around drag queens and don't tip and don't sit down when they're asked and <laughs> Um, to Megan Trainer's song "Mother" on repeat, and well, not ugly, not ugly dry, bridesmaid dresses because she actually had two of the novice nuns to be outfitted to look like angels. So there's these two young women dressed as angels who were her bridesmaids. Oh, and it, wow. yeah. And so when the day comes, she leads this um, procession from the church and in, uh, from the convent, sorry, into the garden of the convent, and then it comes back in, and the nuns follow her, and then they kneel, and she sings, and she she murmurs. She seems to be getting some sort of message. She's in a trance, and then she claims this bright light comes upon her, and Christ appears, um, and she resists him, and she asks him if he's the devil, but he insists, and the Virgin Mary is there, and the Virgin Mary presents Benedetta with a ring. And then with this ring, Jesus and Benedetta are married. Um, and the nuns who are gathered, they obviously can't see any of this vision, of course. Um, and Jesus tells Benedetta that the ring would only be visible to them. And she 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 hides the, the supposed ring on her hand. Um, and then and then Benedetta begins to channel the, the speech of Christ um, in this voice that the nuns all noted was much sweeter and purer than, than Benedetta's herself. So this is what Christ says to them. And I'm going to read it all because it's um, <laughs> it's it's impressive. Okay, if you would know, O sinner, that even I, who am God, was astonished when I saw my bride in the middle of hell, between fire and iron, and with all the demons of the air and hell coming to torment her, and I always found her like a strong column amidst the waves, like gold in the furnace. She was not a false substance by which an alchemist, but pure gold, and again. I want to test her and to test her obedience to his superiors and to the prelates because I want you sinners to know that she is not a column of iron or of marble, but of diamonds. I have wanted the signs of my passion to be greater in her today than ever, that my bride have open wounds on her hands and head as I had when I was on the cross, but not in order that she feels pain, but so that she may feel happiness. I want all who live in this convent to discover these signs so that they may be a constant source of strength and a reminder of my passion. It was I who ordered that she be the abbess of his convent, and I have made her a mirror for all of her nuns. I would like that this, my bride, be empress of all the nuns, and I would like that all who dwell in his convent be a communist sti- constant stimulus to the laity and to all other religious, because I have commanded that they not only be good, but perfectly good. And to those who will not be, I will either send a devil to tempt them so that in desperation they will leave the convent, or I will send them death because I want all those who live here to be perfectly good. Empress of all the nuns. <laughs> and then he ends by saying, well, that's convenient, isn't it? <laughs> he ends by saying, and he who does not believe in my bride shall not be saved. <gasps> this is what is known as a power grab. I think um, through the vision. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right? She's just claiming this huge amount of earthly power through the authority of Christ. Um, and also because of the preparations for the wedding, when the, the locals had given so much so willingly, it really showed that there was an audience for her claims. Um, and so obviously the ecclesiastical authorities were getting increasingly worried about this sort of um, woman preacher. 
and this is something that you see actually throughout the Middle Ages, like the Catholic Church pre-Reformation was time and again encountering uh, mystics and, and preachers who made these big claims, um, who brought um, new approaches to theology, new ideas, and so on. And these mystics and preachers often won quite large followings, um, not least because they often addressed sort of social issues like uh, inequality and corruption in the church, or disasters like plagues or famines. So the church dealt with this in two ways, one of which was by co-opting the mystics or the preachers into the church, as they did with um, Hildegard, for example. And Catholicism is remarkably good at this um, traditionally. The, the, the system of saints and canonization, which require miracles, is all this is essentially a way of sort of co-opting folk beliefs back into the church in order to sort of redirect this popular devotion back towards the church. So that the, the, there's this church and someone starts worshipping this other person from their community or who died. And the the best way to sort of deal with that is to say, like, the church then says, oh, yeah, they're one of us. They fit within our system. And then the second way that they dealt with this uh, was through the idea of heresy. Um, that is sort of trying, uh, like, trying and, and punishing the heterodox preachers for breaking with orthodoxy. Um, so they either turned heterodoxy, uh, meaning people who are, have these ideas that are deviant from the mainstream, they turned heterodoxy into orthodoxy into the mainstream by, by, by making them part of the church, or that they suppressed and destroyed heterodoxy through legal or, or, or military um, means. And this could happen on an individual level. Um, for example, uh, Urbain Grandier, uh, he, he also inspired another am amazing film, better in fact than Benedetta, um, about uh, early modern heresy, which is uh, Ken Russell's The Devils, which is really, really incredible thing, film. It is an incredible film, yes. Yeah. Um, so it could happen on a sort of individual level or it could happen on a huge scale. Um, and a good example of this would be the... Um, the suppression of Cathar uh, Catharism, the Cathars. Cathars were like a, a Gnostic Christian sect that lasted for about 200 years in, in medieval France uh, and in the Rhineland. Uh, and that was actually destroyed eventually by, by a full-scale inquisition and also um, a crusade, like a crusade within, within Europe, uh, the Albigensian crusade. And so you're talking here about whole crusader armies besieging entire towns and cities and murdering tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Cathars. And in fact, during the Bézier massacre, um, soldiers were, were quite worried that they might actually be killing loyal Catholics as well as, as Cathars. Um, and the abbot who was leading the suppression replied, kill them all. God will know his own. Wow. Yeah, so this demonstrates just how, how seriously the, ch the church took um, heresy. And quite rightly, they understood that the ability of heretics to sort of capture popular resentments, that made them a real threat to the church's power. So one of those who's become concerned about Benedetta's vision was the uh, provost of Pescia, uh, an ambitious local church official called uh, Stefano Kecci. So Kecci wanted to uh, the Vatican to turn um, Pescia, where he was the, um, the, the provost, into a diocese, and then he would become the first bishop of Pescia. So worried about how Benedetta's presence might affect this, he began to investigate her claims. And he examined her stigmata, which when they were washed and dried, they continued to bleed. And that's important because um, a real stigmata should, shouldn't heal. They should, they should remain bleeding. Um, but then when he returned a week later, the stigmata and also the puncture wounds around her head had begun to heal. 
So he orders that, that her hair should be cut so that he can wash her head, check it's not, not uh, paint or whatever, and to examine the head wounds. But Benedetta is allowed to briefly leave the room in order that she can um, close up her clothes and, and make herself decent or whatever. And so she leaves the room, and then shortly afterwards, she runs back in with fresh head wounds, like bleeding down her face, her hands are covered in blood, and she's screaming, Jesus, what is this? Uh, at which point the examination is terminated. Because they seem to believe it, which seems crazy to me. It's like, okay, I mean, you, can I, exa- you can examine my stigmata. Let me just um, go to, go to the bathroom for a second with this um, yeah, with this broken bottle. It's horrible. Jesus Christ! <laughs> I mean, I guess what would have been awaiting her if she was found to be uh, cheating uh, or lying would have been uh, worse than a broken bottle in the toilet between. Yeah. Examinations. I mean, that's yeah. That's, I think that's true. So the whole thing is so audacious. I mean, that's not even the half of it, dearie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, they 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 terminate the the examination, um, but they 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 come back over and over again throughout the next month, and in that time, Benedetta is visited again by Christ, but this time he's he's furious. He's really mad. And she claims that he felt that the people of Pesha were sort of undeserving of his mercy and they weren't being pious enough. And so to punish them, he was preparing to send this plague to the region. Um, but don't worry, Benedetta said. Um, I placated him personally by telling him I was prepared to live in purgatory until Judgment Day if just he would spare the poor people of Pesha. Like what is astonishing, I think, to, to modernize is, is that Ketchi, um, uh, that he took her, her claim seriously. Like or sincerely, at least, uh, I think that's the hardest thing uh, to comprehend for us because we simply don't really understand the world as the way they understood the world. Um, to us, I think we'd instantly look with great skepticism on any claims like hers. But they saw the world as structured and ruled by a God who would intercede directly in human affairs and who would make His will known through visions and miracles. And so, Benedetta's visions made sense to them within the, the order of their world, and the idea that they might be punished. Um, for sin by having a plague visited upon them also seemed like a very realistic threat precisely because they'd seen so much plague elsewhere and they made sense of that plague through the framework of a vengeful God. Um, and they also knew that their the grain stores hadn't recovered from an earlier famine and post-famine is exactly the time that the plague was most likely to strike. So, so Provost Ketchi's concern was really about the, the nature of the divisions themselves, not, not whether they actually happened. And most importantly, he wanted to check that um, they were sort of visited upon her, that she hadn't been seeking them. And that's a really big distinction at the time. To, to search for a mystical relationship with the divine is seen as sort of departing from this nun's imperative towards humility. So, ke- oh, ke- so if she was out, if she was attempting to access the divine actively, but isn't that present prayer attempting to access the divine actively? Or what's the distinction that they make? No, it's, it's not. It's it's to have the mystical union, and they had different forms of uh, understandings of like mystical union, uh, vision, ecstasy, which can be reached through prayer. But the purpose of prayer is not to reach them, um, and to 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 go looking for them is seen is to, to be seen as not actually engaging with the main imperative that you have as a Christian, which is towards humbleness and to be solemn and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so that was like a, the big distinction for for, for, for Ketchi. Um, and he 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 really questioned hers to like when she'd had the visions. Like they didn't did they happen at night? You know, making sure they weren't dreams. Um, 
and most importantly, whether she prayed not to have them, which she had done apparently. And she claimed that that she had, quote, tried violently many times not to believe the visions. And this is the same actually with um with Hildegard. Uh, Hildegard um has these visions for years and tries to suppress them. And every time she she suppresses them, she becomes really, really ill with some sort of uh some sort of physical and, and psychological illness. And it's only when she begins to actually write down the visions that she is relieved from her illness. So it's a similar sort of situation. Meant, and is this meant to be sort of proof that she's fighting against the, the visions and trying to get something, trying to and that, and that she's trying to not have the visions, but they're real visions because she can't push them off. Yeah, because she prays, she prays them away, but they don't go away. And if it was a the devil, they would go away, but they don't go away. God insists upon them on, onto her. Um, and, and I think most importantly, he, he ascertains that her visions actually also didn't sort of transcend church orthodoxy. Like she didn't believe that grace could be attained without the church, for example. She didn't believe that her divine union meant that she had tr- transcended sin. Um, and in her visions, for example, when, when mass was performed in the visions, it was always performed according to the proper rites. Um, and what was most concerning, I think, was how Benedetta clearly had felt the blessing of her visions had put her above the other nuns. Um, tension between nuns was was quite common because nuns obviously have interpersonal relationships with these people they live in close quarters with, but also because you know you bring the social and political tensions of a wider society with you into into the convent. Um, and so her statements about her fellow nuns, her self-aggrandizement, um, the fact that she she had been heard to be said to be desiring greater publicity for her mystical visions, they all, these all did raise suspicions. Yet because many of the, the, these problems could be said not to actually be her opinions, but to be part of the visions, uh, they were sort of overlooked. And and even, in fact, the threat about visiting plague onto Pesha, that really made sense theologically. Um, you know, if Christ was angry with the people of Pesha and he wanted to communicate that danger to the people, how else was he supposed to do it other than speaking through someone else? So Ketchi determined uh, that Benedetta uh, was the real deal. And so the, the convent was finally enclosed and um, Benedetta was then reinstated as the abbess. So that was the end of this first investigation. And in the years that followed, Benedetta prophesied her own impending death with these visions that, that, that increased following her father's death. She really felt that she was just about to die. And um, so she had a, a grave dug ready for her. And uh, sure enough, on the Feast of the Annunciation, 1621, uh, Benedetta died. I can see here, Ben, you're getting ready to say, well, thank you for telling such an incredible story about her life. But wait, because her father confessor then visits her body, which the, the, the nuns had laid out in the chapel, and he commands her to, to return to life. And she returns. She's resurrected. She what? Yes, she's resurrected. And she tells the... the Ma'am. <laughs> Ma'am. She tells the nuns who'd assembled... Ma'am. ...that um, she'd seen her soul being grappled by demons who were trying to sort of wrestle it down into hell. But then the archangel Gabriel came down and he appeared with this holy oil that he had taken from the church at Pescia, and he had scattered the demons and released her soul, and her soul went to purgatory. And she was in purgatory briefly, but there she prayed for the release of her father's soul, and she prayed for the nuns in the nunnery. And soon she found herself in heaven in front of God. And she was so happy to be in heaven in front of God that when she heard her confessor's voice, 
calling her. She resisted because she wanted to stay there with God. But God reassured her that she was going to be back in heaven. Don't worry. But not just that, but also all the souls of her fellow nuns and the father confessor would also get to heaven when their time had come. Oh, very convenient. So this is very exciting for the nuns. And this renewed bout of, bout of these visions um, brought Benedetta to the attention of the Vatican itself, who sent a papal nuncio to investigate. A papal nuncio is a sort of uh, like an ambassador from the Pope, I guess. And Brown is very, in, uh, Judith Brown is very interesting about this. She makes this very um, smart point that the Vatican actually has a lot less to gain from these visions than anyone else, than the nuns, from, than her confessor, or even from um, uh, Monsignor Kechi. Um, because there's, there's plenty, they had plenty of mystics, you know. One more mystic is neither here nor there. But if her visions were becoming increasingly unorthodox, if she, she was becoming increasingly outspoken, then they actually had a lot to lose. Uh, and what's more, they were also sort of fighting this battle against um, the big heresy, the biggest heresy of all, Protestantism, which was sort of sweeping across Europe in the Reformation. So the provo- these provocative claims of, of uh, mystics like Benedetta didn't lend any credibility at all to a church who was already fighting these accusations of, of corruption and superstition. Um, and so the papal nuncio ripped apart Benedetta's claims. Um, their, their report opens with one of the all-time great opening lines to me. All novelty is dangerous and all unusual events are suspect. <laughs> the great way to start a story. Ooh, yes. And uh, he, he, he points out that her visions are full of contradictions, both in terms of their chronology, um, theologically as well. And the language is too rich, too ornate. The, the names of her, dev, of her angels that she's been given um, by Christ are too strange. They're very pompous. Um, she'd had the visions at the wrong time, you know, at times when the devils most like to creep in, like she'd have visions when she was in bed rather than at the end of the culmination of her prayers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, her visions lacked, quote, the charity, humility, patience, obedient, uh, obedience, modesty, or other virtues that to that eminent and heroic degree with which they usually accompany the true spirit of God. And Judith Brown actually suggests that um, this reading um, highlights the concern of the church with this threat of the Reformation. She says, quote, These were the qualities that the Reformed Church of Benedetta's time was beginning to stress in its leading figures. Rather than reward miracle workers and intercessors with the supernatural world, who might be nothing more than magicians, the ecclesiastical authorities recognized the sanctity of individuals whose exemplary lives others might follow and whose evangelical work strengthened the power and influence of the church, end quote. And so she contrasts uh, Benedetta's out, outdated visions and, and, and mystical sight visions and stuff uh, with the work of um, Ignatius of Loyola, who was the, the founder of the Jesuits, who seemed to offer a much more modern approach to the work of God in the time of Reformation. So uh, Benedetta was, they reasoned, possessed and possessed by the devil. And that actually did make sense to the townspeople, uh, some of the townspeople, because some of the people in the town claimed that her parents had also undergone these bouts of demonic possession. And then soon these other sort of testimonies of these other nuns began to trickle out, and they really seemed to illustrate this. Um, for example, Christ in his visitation had ordered her not to eat meat or to eat milk. Um, and when authorities had previously told her to eat milk in order to obey them she tried to eat it and she'd vomited it up before them yeah yeah it was um discovered that actually she'd been sneaking mortadella and salami into herself to sort of eat in hiding <laughs> oh queen 
Um, and then also she'd like... And an Italian queen. <laughs> um, she'd ordered all the other nuns to, to self-flagellate, that is, to, to beat themselves on their back with whips, um, as Christ had commanded her to do. And one nun noted that she'd watched, and while she was pretending to whip herself on the back, she actually never let the whip make contact. And instead, she took the blood from these supposed stigmatas on her hand and ran that through the whip so it looked like she'd been beating herself. Hmm. Um, and perhaps worst of all two nuns had actually been spying on her through her study door and they'd seen her reopening her stigmata with a with a large needle which is horrible that is horrible but also impressive somehow so these allegations start to leak out that she was a bully some nuns claimed uh, she was arrogant she bore grudges Um, but the worst allegation was yet to come so sister uh, bartolomea crivelli who was that young novice who'd been assigned to care for Benedetta in the height of her sufferings, she came forward. So this is from an archival document that Brown addressed in an earlier article that she wrote, uh, Lesbian Sexuality in Renaissance Italy, um, which was in uh, the 1984 summer issue, the lesbian issue of Science Journal. Uh, so you can look it up because it's worth a read. But I'm going to quote this, this archival document in full from the report that the papal nuncio wrote because it's... Uh, interesting and unusual. Okay. Comfy. For two continuous years, two or three times a week, in the audience... For two continuous years, two or three times a week, in the evening, after disrobing and going to bed and waiting for her companion, who serves her to disrobe also, she would force her into the bed and kissing her as if she were a man she would stir herself on top of her so much that both of them corrupted themselves because she held her by force, sometimes for one, sometimes for two, sometimes for three hours. And she did these... (laughs) It's going to get saucier. And she did these things during the most solemn hours, especially in the morning at dawn. Pretending that she had some need, she would call her, and taking her by force, she sinned with her, as was said above. Benedetta, in order to have greater pleasure, put her face between the other's breasts and kissed them and wanted always to be thus on her. And six or eight times, when the other nun did not want to sleep with her in order to avoid sin, Benedetta went to find her in her bed and climbing on top, sinned with her by force. Also at that time, during the day, pretending to be sick and showing that she had some need, she grabbed her companion's hand by force and putting it under herself, she would have her put her finger in her genitals and holding it there stirred herself so much that she corrupted herself. And she would kiss her, and also by force would put her own hand under her companion and her finger into her genitals and corrupted her. And when the latter would flee, she would do the same with her own hands. Many times she locked her companion in the study, and making her sit down in front of her, by force she put her hands under her and corrupted her. She wanted her companion to do the same to her, and while she was doing this she would kiss her. She always appeared to be in a trance while doing this. Her angel, Splendidiello, uh, did these things, appearing as a boy or a boy of eight or nine years of age. This angel, Splendidiello. Splendidiello. <laughs> Splendidiello, the little boy angel, yeah. forced me to have lesbian sex. This angel, Splendidiello, through the mouth and hands of Benedetta, taught her companion to read and write, making her be near her on her knees, and kissing her, and putting her hand on her breasts. 
This splendid yellow called her his beloved. He asked her to swear to be his beloved always and promised that after Bernadette's death, he would always be with her and would make himself visible. He said, I want you to promise me not to confess these things that we do together. I assure you that there's no sin in it. And while we did these things, he said many times, give yourself to me of all your heart and soul and then let me do as I wish. The same angel managed it so that neither Benedetta nor her companion did the usual spiritual exercises that the nuns did prior to general confession. He made the signs of the cross all over his companion's body after having committed with her many dishonest acts. He also said many words that she couldn't understand, and when she said she asked why he did, was doing this, he said that he did it for her own good. Jesus spoke to her companion through Benedetta three times, twice before doing these dishonest things. The first time he said he wanted her to be his bride and he was content that she give him her hand and she did this thinking it was Jesus. The second time it was in the choir at 40 hours, holding her hands together and telling her that he forgave her all her sins. The third time it was after she was disturbed by these affairs and he told her that there was no sin involved whatsoever and that Benedetta while doing these things had no awareness of them. All these things her companion confessed with very great shame. Oh, wow. I mean. There is a lot to unpack. Lesbian sex club called Splendid Yellow. (laughs) There is is a lot to unpack in this. Uh, First of all, I think it's very much worth pointing out just how unusual this claim was at the time. Like there, There are virtually no ecclesiastical trials across the whole of the medieval and early modern period, specifically for women having sex with women. Um. Priests with priests, yes. Monks with monks, yes. Monks with nuns, nuns with monks, nuns with priests. Priests with monks with nuns. Priests with monks with boys, with monks with nuns, with sheep. Like any which way you can imagine. But there's only a handful of passing references to anything that really approaches women with women. Um, Judicial authorities, in fact, kind of struggled even to name the crime itself, which obviously makes it much harder to find a reference to it. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's also something worth pointing out here, which is um, if the papal nuncio had merely been attempting to destroy her reputation in order to force her out as the abbess, it seems extremely unlikely that he'd accuse her of having a lesbian affair, which implicates other other nuns in the convent, for example, and uh, is very not very comprehensible uh, to people at the time. Like it's far more likely that, um, as actually did often happen, he'd just accuse her of having had sex with a man. Um, secondly, the accusations clearly allege that the sex was non-consensual, but I think that also needs to be taken with a, a massive pinch of salt, considering the pressure that um, Bartolomeo would have been into t- under sort of to testify in the first place if someone was telling her, knew that she'd been doing this, um, and her need to save herself from any potential pun- punishment had it been consensual, and of course the fact that I think they're probably perhaps wasn't even the language or the conception of consensual sex between women that was available to say to the nuncio. The, the nuncio wouldn't understand, you know, this idea of uh, desire between the women. So it could only really be comprehended as a form of sort of demonic violence. Right. And I, I think it's the, the angel bit is particularly interesting because it's almost as though like in order to conceive of this as sex, she has to not actually be her, but it has to be being occupied by a male. Yeah, I mean, we'll come on to this later in terms of their self-conception of, of their own relationship, I guess. But but I do think, um, I mean, same-sex behave, 
same-sex behaviour between between nuns like was clearly something that did happen. It must have happened. You'd imagine, you know, ten percent of all women living in nunneries. It must have been something that had occurred relatively frequently, frequently. But I think it was probably almost invisible within a society that that didn't that recognised sex as something else. Like it couldn't recognise women having a sexual relationship as sex, and therefore it didn't have the necessarily had language to talk about it in that way. Um, uh, Judith Brown actually writes that those. Uh, who were interrogating the women, quote, lacked an imaginative schema to incorporate the sexual behavior they had described, which is, is probably true. Like They didn't have a sexual schema where this behavior being described, they'd be like, oh, these two women are having sex with each other. Um, and that can be seen like quite literally in, in the archival document itself, because while the rest of the text is, is very neatly written, <laughs> the handwriting actually starts to sort of break down when it comes to recording the, the testimony of a sexual relationship. Oh my God, as in, as in like the whoever's scribing it like can't actually believe. Yeah, the scribe is like overcome and he, he, he can't, he literally can't write it. It becomes illegible. The, 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 and then his, he scribbles words out and rewrites them. It's like he, he's, he doesn't, he, he can't actually write what's happening because he can't believe it. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, there's that, that point you mentioned, this sort of aspect of the degree to which either Benedetta or Bartolomeo recognized that they were women having sex with other women at the time. Like, if we're to take um, Benedetta's visions in good faith, then um, she clearly regarded her body as merely a vessel through which the divine was communicating, or in this yeah. case, copulating. Um, she, she, she repeatedly claimed that, that while she was in a trance state, she had no real awareness of what she was doing. Um, she apparently wrote letters in a trance state and people would come to her to talk to her about the things she'd written in the letter and she had no memory of it at all. And then from Bartolomeo's perspective, more importantly, I think she was clearly like a very young woman who was probably not literate. She was living this quite rural part of Italy who, and she joined this convent at a young age. And then she was given this quite important role of caring for a woman who, everyone around her is convinced is is channeling christ himself and and so she's already been persuaded that she saw the stigmata appear on benedetta and she believed that she'd sort of felt the hole where benedetta's heart had been removed so is it really so unbelievable that she sincerely thought that she was having sex with a male angel like maybe not right and then there's this other option of course which is that the visions themselves um perhaps gave the two women either consciously or, or maybe even subconsciously the sort of thought space like the, the realm of imagination the schema as, as as judith brown put it in which they could visualize and understand something within themselves like that they had a very real sexual desire towards each other um but this gave them a space for them to sort of recognize and, and enact it in a way that felt them and, and seemed to them theologically good um anyway there, there were other allegations, uh, such as Benedetta was seen um, holding hands of a priest at, at some point and things like this. But all in all, the, the case seemed extremely clear. Uh, basically, Benedetta lacked the virtue, and as such, she had been possessed by the devil. Um, and that seemed like, I think, probably, I think that offered an easy way out for her. Um, and, and she began to agree that that was what had happened. And she renounced the idea that she'd received any form of divine favor at all. And and uh, there was a new a new abbess came in and and under this new abbess she sort of renewed her commitment to prayer and chastity etc cetera, etc cetera. and that probably saved her life um, although not her liberty because if she'd been tried for sodomy uh, she would have been burned and women were tried for sodomy um, but instead she was actually um, imprisoned within the convent uh, and it seems that she 
she probably received the usual treatment that imprisoned nuns had, uh, which were having her habit and her veil removed from her. Um, she wouldn't have been allowed to talk to other nuns. She would have been locked in a cell. She might have been released from her cell occasionally, but just to take mass, uh, maybe even on her own. And she wouldn't have been given much food. And the food that she would given, she'd have been expected to have eaten on the floor outside the, the refectory, the dining room, so that when the other nuns were arriving on their way or leaving dinner, they'd literally be stepping over her. And of course, she was expected wow. to um, to self-flagellate, to beat herself. And so she lived like that for almost 40 years, uh, locked away imprisoned in a convent. Uh, not just imprisoned in a convent, but in a prison imprisoned in a convent. Until on um, August the 7th, 1661, she, she died again. And uh, this this time for real. And the nuns sort of lay her out in a chapel, um, and according to them, she'd sort of served her penance, and so she was then dressed again once more in her habit and veil. She'd sort of done her done her time. Um, <clears throat> and uh, Brown notes that actually the do- the nuns uh, had to actually bar the doors of the convent to pre- prevent people arriving because the townsfolk had heard of her death, and perhaps still believing it, they sort of attempted to storm the chapel in order to touch her body and to to gather relics of her. And perhaps they'd never stopped believing in um, in her visions. Thank you all so much for supporting the show, for listening to the show. A special shout out to those of you who support us every month on Patreon. Uh, that really does help us um, make the show. It helps us um, take the time that we need to do it. Um, and uh, it's really something that we enormously appreciate. If uh, you are interested in uh, joining our Patreon. Uh, you can find information about that at uh, badgazepod.com. Um, there is no special podcast content for Patreon listeners. Um, nothing is locked behind paywalls. Um, we have some small rewards, but really it's just about uh, you supporting something that's important or interesting to you. And um, if that's something that you're able to do, that you're interested in doing, we really, really do appreciate it. Another great way you can help support the show is to check out our book, which we published last year, Bad Gays, A Homosexual History. It's out now in hardback from Verso and will be coming out soon in paperback if, um, if you prefer paperback. And it covers a whole series of evil and complicated LGBTQ people from history and the way that their relationships affected and were affected by colonialism. Yeah, it's, um, if I say so myself, a fun read. Um, and we really tried to bring the stories together um, into this coherent narrative. Um, it's been a real joy to get to tour it. And uh, if you're interested in the book, you can find out information on the book and on upcoming events that we're doing to support the book at badgazepod.com book. And now on with the show. Well, thank you for telling us um, that amazing story Hugh and like the the real story behind that movie um do we think we start, started out at the beginning by being very careful and I think in, in a way that I really appreciate to take seriously the claims of mystic experience but another way of interpreting this would be to say that perhaps this is a way that an intelligent woman in a convent could speak could claim power could articulate herself as someone who was worth respecting um you could articulate that in a uh, very positive way and think about women speaking against patriarchy you could also in a kind of uh, 
gaslight gatekeep real boss way, think about Benedetta potentially, you know, maybe she is committing sexual assault. Uh, maybe she is, um, you know, using cynically using these visions in order to claim power within the convent and get more sort of for herself. Um, what, uh, what's your take on it? What's your read? I don't think the first two things are contradictory. Like I think like mysticism is, a, is a, is a thing. People have mystic experiences. Like I know <laughs> without going into too much detail. Like, uh, like there, there is such a thing as a, as like those, those des- descriptions of the sort of four principles of mysticism are real experiences. Um, I don't think that's necessarily sort of contradiction to contradictory towards the idea that like, um, intelligent people might use those, those experiences within their own lives in order to shape something more widely. Like if you had that mystical experience and you had that connect, some sort of connection where there was a revealed truth to you, then wouldn't you want to incorporate that into your life and in some way share that with other people? I think that's probably true. Um, are, were there also, are there still also people who claim mystical experiences who are charlatans? Also almost certainly true. Like I, I, I think, I think um, when approaching medieval mystics uh, and and early modern mystics, I would normally tilt towards um, taking people in good faith. Uh, I think, secondly, like the reading of w- the nature of those experiences tells us so much about their societies they lived in. Like, so the way that like m- like a lot of um, uh, sort of medieval mystics had visions that were related to social injustice. Um, I think that's really, I think that's really important. And I think that's like a genuine thing they felt because the nature of understanding, for example, divine love, the interconnectedness of all sort of human, of all human beings, things like this are obviously going to like happen in a social context. Like religion does happen in a social context. So taking that into account that these two things are not mutually exclusive, that, that people's, um, mystical visions and their relationship with the divine happen within a social context. Yeah. I think like this is, this is like, um, uh, a way that we hear women's voices coming down to us through the centuries, because there was this one space where women's voices were recorded. I think think some of the things that women were saying, whether that's Hildegard or Benedetta or, 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 um, Marguerite Kemp, these, these, um, these were being said by other other women, but they're not recorded or they had no um, traction in the world because of the way that women were treated in, in those societies. There's actually a, a really amazing book by a, a Scottish writer called Francis McKee called uh, Even the Dead Rise Up, I think it's called. Um, and that's kind of about the relationship between mysticism, spiritualism, spiritism, um, and then political sort of movements like anarchism, and um, abolitionism uh, and feminism. And so, for example, although in, in the 19th century, you start to see this rise in spiritualism, which is the belief in talking to the dead, which is different from mysticism, which is talking uh, 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 contact with the divine. This is communication to the, the dead, which rises up in uh, Western society uh, in, in the United States, France, UK, um, and also as part of syncretic religions in South America, actually, in the late 19th century or mid-19th century. And that some of the first spirit, spiritualists in, um, in the United States are these, um, the Fox sisters, who are these sisters um, who are sort of um, very much within 
a uh, milieu of like Quaker abolitionists um, and first wave feminists and things like this. And they, they receive these messages from the, the dead and the messages they are channeling are political messages about abolitionism and about um, uh, women's rights and things like this. And this is a way I think that, that they communicate their own feelings about um, the agency of women. And they can do that in a way that is somehow less risky for them as women because they are not themselves speaking. They're simply channeling these voices. So I don't think you can split it between those two positions. I think it's also um, a matter of uh, the fact that, that, that these, these are the ways that women are allowed to speak within these cultures. And so when they speak, they say these things that are empowering towards women uh, and sometimes extremely radical. Not always. Um, Hildegard was not always radical in her relationship with, with other women but sometimes very radical things that they can say and they're things that women were feeling and are never recorded anywhere else because women were denied access to uh, education and literacy and um and the ability to document and have those debates and so having said that i think there's also like a very interesting complicated thing to pull apart in the testimony of bartolomeo which is clearly alleging sexual assault which which it might have been the case. She might have been someone taking advantage of her mystical experiences, or she might have been a charlatan inventing these mystical experiences and who took advantage of those to sexually assault this, um, this naive woman who, who believed in her. That's also, that's also possible. Um, but, but I think that the, that taking that on face value from a, um, a text, from a, a testimony towards a, in, in this sort of, clerical trial in this in this way like he really does need to be taken with a pinch of salt it's very hard to pull apart the likelihood of that being um consensual and unconsensual in that context yeah and this isn't a sex gender system in which consent really makes particularly much sense as a concept right i mean in the in the way that in the way that we think about it now yeah i'd, I'd say so i mean there, there obviously was conceptions of violation um but uh, but the, the 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 concept of consent, as we understand it, is probably not applied. So, uh, what are some of the sources that you used to research this episode? Here, if people wanted to learn more about Sister Benedetta, other than watching uh, the movie, which I do um, very much recommend, despite <laughs> it's differing from the apparently true story in many ways. Uh, one of the ways that it differs from the true story in a way that. I found extremely uh, enjoyable is the presence of uh, Charlotte Rampling turning in one of those uh, most acting in a motion picture style performances <laughs> as the evil mother superior who's trying to sort of push her own daughter against uh, Benedetta. Uh, and it's just wonderful to watch. But uh, other than other than that film and, and Judith Brown's books, uh, what else is there? Well, no, Judith Brown's book is really the place to go. Immodest Acts, The Life of a Lesbian Nun in Renaissance Italy. It's an amazing work. Um, it's very, very um, engaging and accessible to read. Uh, you can zip through it and it's um, very, very, yeah, it's, it's great storytelling, but it's also really addresses some of the really um, uh, complex issues uh, very thoughtfully. So it's, that's great. And there's also the um, the journal article that she wrote for Science Journal, the, the lesbian issue of Science Journal in the summer of 1984, which is Lesbian Sexuality in Renaissance Italy, the case of Sister Benedetta Carlini. Um, and then some of the other sort of things that I was reading around this, one of which is the Elvia Wilk article on Eflux, um, The Word Made Fresh, Mystical Encounter and the New Weird Divine, which is um, a really exciting text, which I've read multiple times. 
I mean, if you're interested in general in in this sort of um, uh, this aspect of like mystical uh, mystical Christian thought in the Middle Ages, especially, and its relationship with the political, uh, one of my favorite history books of all time, maybe my favorite nonfiction book of all time, uh, The Pursuit of the Millennium: Revolutionary Mille- Millenarians and Mystical Anarchists of the Middle Ages, uh, which is a, a, a seminal text by Norman Cohn. Yeah, in general, I would tell our readers that if you are interested in kind of dipping your toes into reading more academic history, uh, microhistory is often a really great place to start. It's a technique that comes out of this kind of, I see it as one of many kind of 70s and 80s lefty attempts. You think of people like Stuart Hall also doing it slightly differently to kind of reconcile um, writing about people's individual agency with a kind of more structural analysis. Hmm. Um, and these classic microhistories, a lot of them are about the middle ages. A lot of them are extremely horny. Um, a lot of them are extremely funny, um, and will bring you into a world of oftentimes such utter difference from your own in a really, uh, lovely and evocative way. And they've been really, it's not exactly how I work as a historian, but they've been really influential to me. Um, and they're some of my favorite, uh, individual historical texts. Yeah. And on that note, actually, the pursuit of the millennium is not a microhistory. It, it, it's it's a sprawling uh, uh, coverage of sort of six or seven hundred years of um, of, uh, of of mystical anarchism and and stuff. But one one of the things that's really interesting in that is he goes into quite a lot of depth into the Cathars and um, the unique and fascinating sex gender system of the Cathars, um, which uh, which is really contrary to the sort of Catholic system at the time. Um, and fun fact that the Cathars, um, who were seen to be sodomites, um, by, by the Orthodox Catholics, the, 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 the theology of Cathar, Catharism originally came from Bulgaria and transliterated across into, into France. And so the, the nickname for the Cathars was firstly the Bulgars and then the Buggers, which is where we get the, uh, buggery. Word, word buggery from. It's amazing. It's, buggery is intimately related to the idea of, um, uh, religious heresy. And if you want uh, more of a micro history of that kind of um, folk radicalism of that era, the kind of classic micro history is Carlo Ginsburg's book, The Cheese and the Worms, um, in which he goes through the heresy trials of this um, Italian miller and manages to figure out what books he was reading and, and argues for the existence of this kind of culture of folk resistance in yeah. the in uh, Renaissance Italy. It's a, it's a really amazing book. Um, so that's our show and that's our season. Thanks so much for um, joining us this season. Uh, if you're listening to this right now, our paperback uh, book is coming out in a week and you've already heard us tell you many times how to pre-order it, but uh, hopefully we'll be announcing some dates soon this summer to come see you. Um, so keep your ears open for that. And uh, season seven we're planning later this year, although we said that a bunch last year and ended up being quite late with this one. So we'll see, but um, I don't think either one of us is done with this yet. So there will be a season seven and uh, special episodes and paperbacks to keep you busy until then. Uh, we wish you a very happy and wonderful summer uh, free of all evil twinks, except the ones who are fun. And uh, <laughs> Anything else to add? Uh, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to the evil twinks. Bring them on. The summer of evil twinks on the beaches of Barcelona. We'll be there. Find us. I'll have a really big hat on. Um, so you can follow me on Twitter at Ben Writes Things. You can follow the show on Twitter at uh, Bad Gaze Pod. You can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy, or I've got a newsletter as well you can subscribe to, hugh.substack.com. 
And uh, Hugh's cat found us on screen right now being real cute. So we'll leave you with that image. Bye. Bye. Bad. 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 Bad.